What are the implications of the Supreme Court's decision in Moore v. Harper for American democracy? What will the case mean for 2024 election challenges? Does the decision shut down attempts to submit slates of fake electors and subvert presidential elections? On the season four finale of the ALB podcast, a voting rights roundtable with Derek Muller, Carolyn Shapiro, Bertral Ross, and Rick Pildes. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. On Wednesday, June 28th, the Safeguarding Democracy Project conducted a flash webinar on the Supreme Court's decision in Moore versus Harper. Joining the roundtable with me were Derek Muller, Carolyn Shapiro, Bertral Ross, and Rick Pildes. Here is our discussion. I'm really thrilled to have this panel here today to discuss this case and unpacking it. Uh, I didn't even know if we were going to get a decision in this case because there was a question about whether or not the, the, the case was moot, whether it could even be heard. And before we get into the merits, uh, let me turn first to you, Derek, and just ask you to explain why was the case possibly moot? Why was it that we weren't sure up to even the minutes before the opinion came out if we were going to get an opinion in the case? And, and how do you think the court resolve that question. There was a dissent from three justices on the mootness question. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a winding path for this case <laughs> over many, uh, many months. You know, the, the, this case came up before the Supreme Court in an emergency posture in February, March of 2022. So it's been languishing for a long time. And in the interim, the North Carolina Supreme Court turned over personnel. Um, it had an election in the fall of 2022. Uh, and then there was an attempt to have a rehearing on the original case dealing with the gerrymander. And so there's a series of cases with Roman numerals all involving Harper <laughs> about sort of getting the order in this case. But while this case was pending in for the Supreme Court after argument, the North Carolina Supreme Court granted rehearing on a related case, uh, had an oral argument and issued a decision essentially saying not only that the North Carolina legislature could institute the maps that it wanted, um, but that its previous decision finding that the North Carolina Constitution prohibited partisan gerrymandering was overruled. And so this set up a question about, well, if the one thing at the core of this case about what the state Supreme Court did is gone, uh, you know, is this case moot? And there was a lot of supplemental briefing. The Solicitor General, for instance, that the case was moot. And there, there was a lot of posturing here. The majority came out and said, look, at its core, this case is about this 2021 map that the legislature implemented with a judgment there. And whatever the North Carolina Supreme Court did in 2023 didn't alter that judgment. That judgment is still there prohibiting the 2021 map from going into effect. And if that's the case, we still have jurisdiction to address that issue and whether or not the North Carolina legislature can do it. And the dissent looks at it and says, it looks like the they've gotten everything they wanted. There's nothing else that we can really give as a matter of practical relief. But at least formally for the majority, they said, we can step in. We can give uh, a judgment in this case and, and issue a decision that will affect the parties. Uh, and, and they did so. And what about Justice Thomas's dissenting view on this? I mean, he, he was very much looking at this as a as a very practical matter. And again, I think more consistent with the Solicitor General's view to say, look, I mean, there, there's really nothing left here for us to decide. If we send this back, the North Carolina legislature isn't going to use the 2021 maps. It's going to do something else. Or even if it wanted to, it could draw a new map and use the 2021 map as a template and do exactly the same thing it wanted. That really there's nothing formally that's changed if we issue a judgment that somehow does something to what happened with that 2021 order wherever it was pending at, at some previous place in time. The precedent that says North Carolina has an anti-gerrymandering provision in its state constitution is gone. And if that's gone, what are we doing deciding this case today? Rick, can I say a couple things about mootness? Yes, can I please. So, so first, one of the things that's kind of fun about the case, if you will, is there's sort of an irony about this whole mootness issue because... Uh, the North Carolina legislators who were looking to overturn the Supreme Court decision, who are represented by the Cooper Kirk Law Firm in D.C., they argued the case was not moot. And the Supreme Court basically accepted their theory as to why it wasn't moot. And then they lost the case on the merits. Conversely, several of the parties who won the case had been begging the court to find the case moot and not to decide it. So I think that's kind of an interesting twist here. The other thing I want to put into the mix is I, you know, I commend the court 
uh, for finding the case not moot, because as many of us in the election law field have said, it was incredibly important that we get some clarity about this doctrine or doctrines. Uh, and if there were any basis for the court continuing to find it had jurisdiction, many of us thought they should seize on that basis, which is exactly what they did. Uh, it's just ironic that um, the roadmap for that was given to them by the party that then lost on the merits. Can I also add something? Please. I think that there's another irony here, which is that in 2021, when the Supreme Court did not grant cert in at the case that had arisen during the 2020 election out of Pennsylvania, Justice Thomas wrote an opinion, a dissent from the denial of cert, arguing that the court should have granted cert in that case because this was such an important issue and it needed to be decided. And in election law, there's a little more flexibility around mootness. So there's no question that in that case, there was nothing left. The, the election was over. Joe Biden was president. Um, so I, I do find that a little ironic as well. We could talk about Justice Thomas and irony in that he also rejected the the theory of the independent state legislature theory that he had signed on to in Bush versus Gore. But we'll, we'll get to that uh, in a moment. Let me stick with you, Carolyn, and just ask you, you know, if you looked at some of the headlines, you know, it was Supreme Court rejects independent state legislature theory. And, and, and that, that's, that seems to be wrong. And, and we'll get to what the court accepted. But the court, I think it's clear, did reject the most extreme or maximalist version of the independent state legislature theory. So what was that theory? Why did the court reject it? And where were Justices Thomas and Gorsuch in dissent on, on that question? So now we've turned from the, the technical mootness question that Derek just addressed to the merits. The extreme version, which definitely has been rejected, is that because the elections clause says that time, place, and manner of congressional elections is to be determined by the state legislature, and subtext probably also because the electors clause says that state legislatures determine the method by which presidential electors are appointed, that the state legislature has some kind of unique uh, ability to act without the normal checks and balances provided by the state constitution and by the, the judiciary. At its ex most extreme version, this would mean that, for example, state constitutional provisions that provide for uh, anti-gerrymandering uh, requirements, which, is, which have now been enacted in a fair number of states by, by citizen initiative, would be inapplicable to to, to congressional redistricting. They simply could not apply. It means that state constitutional provisions that date all the way back to the founding that say things like voting shall for all offices shall be by ballot would not necessarily apply to federal elections. It would really unmoor state legislatures from what creates them, which is the state constitution. Uh, and at its most extreme, it would provide absolutely no limits on what they could do under state constitutional law and would not allow for any kind of judicial oversight by the state courts. Okay, and you did use the term unmoor, and I, I just can't resist that. Uh, I was going to call this democracy unmoored. That that wasn't quite right, but but I, I did notice that. Um, but where did, did Thomas and Gorsuch, again, Alito, who's also in dissent, only dissented on the technical point about mootness, did Thomas and Gorsuch embrace the theory that the North Carolina legislators put forward, or was there some nuance there in what they were saying? I mean, I think that they say it says legislature, and that means legislature. And so there's not a lot of nuance there. Justice Thomas then goes on to criticize the majority for suggesting that there will be some kind of federal judicial review of state courts' interpretations and applications of their own constitutions. And that opens a whole Pandora's box of problems, which may well be true, but I don't see how that's really significantly different from the Pandora's, even bigger Pandora's box of problems that his version would result in. Let me turn to Rick Pildes and ask the question, right, so you said, I think in your introductory remark, independent state legislature theory or theories, right? So there's kind of a, this nomenclature thing, is ISLT dead? Right, so one version is dead, but there's something else that's still there. And so what is it that the majority said is the proper role of state courts in relation to state legislatures when it comes to federal elections? And you had a piece in today's New York Times that says that 
this creates some uncertainties and some dangers. Yes. So one of the things that's been difficult in talking about the case publicly is there are a number of versions of a potential independent state legislature doctrine or theory. They're not all the same. The implications are not all the same. The court resoundingly rejected, as Carolyn was describing, the most extreme version of the theory, the version that would really have dramatically destabilized federal elections. But at the same time, they actually did endorse a weaker version of the theory. And I think we no longer call it a theory. It's a doctrine now. The court established that there are federal constitutional constraints that apply not just to state courts interpreting their state constitutions when it comes to federal uh, state statutes regulating federal elections, but I think this doctrine clearly applies to all state actors, state election administrators, implementing state election statutes for federal elections, as well as state courts. Uh, and, and what the court held here uh, is that there is some boundary that other actors can't transgress when they're working with state election statutes, um, but they didn't give us any real sense of what the content of that boundary is. So they said things like state courts don't have free reign. Uh, they said state courts cannot transgress the boundaries of uh, something like ordinary you know, judicial review and the like. So, uh, and Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately, and, and I think a main reason he wrote separately, I think partly he wanted to explain why he was coming out this way after some of the statements he had written in the 2020 election context, but also I think he wanted to lay down a marker that he thinks this doctrine really has some teeth. Uh, and so he wanted it to be clearly understood that the court had established what he called the principle that you know federal constitutional law constrains state courts or other state actors uh, in the context of interpreting or implementing or applying state constitutions to state election statutes for federal elections. So we now have an endorsement of the weaker version of the doctrine. Um, we had never had a majority of the court endorse any version of this doctrine. When Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote his concurrence in Bush v. Gore for three justices, which endorsed a, a different version of the doctrine, uh, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of support, but, but that kind of lay dormant for all these years. Now, a majority of the court has not only endorsed the position of the Rehnquist concurrence in Bush v. Gore, but has actually extended it to the domain of state constitutional decision-making. And we just have no idea at this point what the boundaries of that principle or new doctrine are or will be. And I think, um, just to close these comments off, there's no question that partisan actors are going to try to exploit this opening when it serves their partisan interest in the context of fights over 2024 uh, election rules. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for lawyers to turn these disputes over state election law into federal claims. So I, I think that is a shadow now hanging over the 2024 elections. It does introduce some uncertainty that we won't get worked out until we have a series of, of further decisions, probably mostly in the lower courts on this. I want to delve deeper into this question. I've got a lot of subsidiary questions, uh, how these cases get to federal court, et cetera. And I know Derek has written about that. Uh, but I want to turn to Bertrall in the bigger picture here. You know, what was hanging over this case was... Uh, the 2020 election and Donald Trump's imploring of uh, state legislatures to appoint their own slates of electors to, after voters had voted. You had some lawyers like uh, John Eastman and Clayton Mitchell using ISLT as a basis for claiming that legislatures had this power. Bertrand, have we stepped away from the precipice with, with this ruling and with Congress passing electoral count act reform in December? Are we out of the woods? <laughs> I wish we were out of the woods, but um, unfortunately, I don't think we are. And I think a lot of this follows up on Rick's, Rick Pildes' point earlier. Um, I would say that there were you know, two thumbs up for this decision in terms of you know, protecting integrity and building trust over elections um, from this particular case. But there's one major thumb down um, from this particular case. So one thumb up um, was one that Carolyn um, opined about or described is rejecting the extreme version of ISLT. So it maintains a check in the system 
um, with respect to elections, and that state courts play an important checking function over state legislatures. Another thumbs up, um, so those are two kind of connected in terms of resolving the extreme um, version of ISLT and also maintaining state courts. But the thumbs down, um, and this is kind of really building on Rick's point, is that by making the point that state courts do not have free reign, but rather have some limited, there's some limitations on what they can do, that level of uncertainty can be manipulated and feed into the distrust about the election to come. Um, I think that Justice Thomas makes a very important point in his dissenting opinion that I think is worth um, reflecting on and, and thinking about. And his point was that, look, these, these disputes are going to arise in quickly evolving politically, politically charged controversies. And the winner of federal elections may be decided by a federal court's expedited judgments that a state court exceeded the bounds of ordinary judicial review. Now, when you think about 2020 and we think about the disputes that are arising right around the election um, that, you know, fed into the big lie. And we think about what's to come in 2024 with the same, potentially the same contestants and the same issues arising. To throw this into the mix of the federal court potentially stepping in or not or having to make decisions about whether to step in or not with regards to these politically explosive disputes, um, raises that uncertainty and can feed into conspiracy theories that undermine the integrity of the election. So I think it's a it's a step in the right direction, but I think there's concern with respect to the court leaving this matter undefined. If they go the route in terms of defining the federal court's role, in terms of reviewing what state courts do, in terms of interpreting their constitutions and statutes, and, and say that they're going to be very deferential towards the state courts, then I think that that would be the ideal direction to go. But if there is some wiggle room in which they exercise discretion about when they're going to intervene and get themselves involved and enmeshed in these political controversies, I think that that would be a, a pretty important step backwards. But we do have the Electoral Count Reform Act that you mentioned as well, which is an important step forward. I think that there have been efforts by Congress um, to move us closer to a point where we can have an election process that could proceed without the hiccups and the problems that are associated with the 2020 elections, but we are certainly not out of the woods. All right, so I want to delve into the court's holding and this vagueness that uh, Rick Pildes was just talking about. Now, I want to ask it in the context of a dispute that was live back in 2020, which was we were in the middle of the pandemic, uh, voting was harder, uh, the U.S. mail system was not working as efficiently as it usually did, and some voters went to the Pennsylvania courts and they said, we think that the deadline for the extension of absentee ballots by election officials should be extended by three days in order to preserve the right to vote under the Pennsylvania state constitution. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court agreed. They said, yeah, uh, any ballots that come in within three days after the election, those will be counted. And uh, Trump allies went to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, this violates the independent state legislature. There is violates the elections clause. Uh, actually, it violates the electors clause to the extent we're talking about the presidential elections, the, the parallel provision in Article 2 that applies to presidential elections. And Justice Alito, who was the circuit justice at the time, he, he thought that was a plausible enough argument that he ordered the ballots segregated, the ones that came in in those last three days. There were about 10,000 of those ballots. Biden won the state by about 80,000, so it didn't matter for the presidential election. But it could have could have put the U.S. Supreme Court in the position to decide who won Pennsylvania if those ballots were determinative. At the time that happened in 2020, we didn't know if ISLT was a thing or, or what it was. Now we sort of know. So what I want to ask each of you is, how is the Supreme Court going to resolve this question? And you know, feel free to say need more information. But uh, Derek, let me start with you. What do you think if this, this case comes up, what is the Supreme Court going to do with it? Needs more information. I mean, you're, you're looking at what facts you've got to get the five votes. I mean, frankly, that's what I'm looking. I mean, you have this standard that's fairly open-ended right now. And it, it's open-ended that can kind of go in almost any direction, right? It, it can be something that's extraordinarily narrow or something that's much broader, depending on where sort of the center of the court is. It's something, and I think uh, Rick Pildes mentioned this, uh, that, that Justice Kavanaugh sort of goes out of his way to think about whether the state courts are doing something new or different. Um, you know, is there something else that, that doesn't logically follow from what the court has done in the past? I think the clarity with which the legislature has spoken matters. So when the legislature says Tuesday, 
Um, that's a pretty firm deadline <laughs> in other standards, you know, about, um, you know, may, distinguishing may and musts or things like that in the statute might be subject to more review. So I think there are a whole bunch of caveats that show up for any point in time. And, and even though the court couldn't coalesce around a standard, Whatever standard it is, it's really about the court's mood and how they're applying that standard. Do they view this as a mood that's like really, really deferential or is it deferential with sort of peeking through one eye and saying, we think you're doing something fishy here or whatever it might be? Um, so I think it's really open-ended about where the court might go and how egregious the facts are and how much the state court has been able to justify what it's done based upon the record in front of it. So I take it that any deviation from what the legislature says in the statute, you've already now gotten Gorsuch's vote and Thomas's vote that that's not allowed. And so then the question is, can you get to three more? So Carolyn, let me ask you how you think this might be resolved. And would it matter under Kavanaugh's kind of anti-novelty test? Would, would you have to go back and look at whether the state Supreme Court is usually using originalist methodology and then they deviate? Or would you look at whether there were precedents that were close? Like, how are you going to operationalize this? Well, that is the million dollar question. So I will say need more information. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say a couple of things. One is the state courts have to be really meticulous about what they do. And I, I'm a bigger defender of what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in 2020 than some, uh, because I, I've if you drill down into the the opinion, all seven justices agreed that the under the very particular circumstances involving COVID and the post office, the statutory scheme could not operate constitutionally. And it, the disagreement among the Pennsylvania justices was about remedy, not about not about whether or not the actual statutory scheme was constitutional. They said it wasn't, uh, but they didn't do a great job of explaining all of that in ways that would speak to this particular type of review. And so I hope going forward that state courts will do that, that they will say, hey, we're doing something that might look different from, but if you take it in the context of our long history of how we've applied the, the right to vote under our constitution, the type of equitable powers that state courts have, and that the legislatures have given us in the context of elections, et cetera, et cetera, that is going to be, I think, very important to how the Supreme Court responds uh, when somebody brings this new, this type of ISLT claim, which of course they will. There's no question about that. The, the court will be asked to decide these questions. The majority, uh, Chief Justice Roberts mentions Justice Souter and Justice Souter's opinion as does uh, Justice Kavanaugh. And Justice Souter's opinion uh, really is quite explicit that disagreement over statutory interpretation is not the kind of going beyond the bounds of ordinary judicial review that he thinks might be reviewable by by the, the Supreme Court. Uh, and so, I, you know, that's at least a clue that that the majority thinks that there should be some meaningful deference here. Rick, I want to get at this question for you by pointing to something in your op-ed in the New York Times today, where you talk about, you, you say some, I'm paraphrasing here, judicial minimalism is often a virtue, but not when it creates this kind of lack of clarity. And I was wondering if you could contrast this with what you've said about racial gerrymandering in Shaw versus Reno, where you've talked about how just putting a general rule out there is sometimes enough to create a kind of interim effect in terms of what actors do. Could you defend what the Supreme Court did here as just telling state Supreme Courts, like, don't be extreme. Yes. So um, a couple things about that question and the, and the general issue. You, you brought up the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extending the deadline for ballot receipt. I think we should also be asking, what about this North Carolina decision? Would the Supreme Court, under the standard laid out here, find the North Carolina court had actually violated the federal constitution? I think we, we don't really have any idea about, about that. So we could talk about both of these cases. To get to your question, um, Ned Foley had a very interesting post on the election law blog today in which he basically said, this is part of what's going to happen. And he was celebrating it. He said, courts should understand that the Pennsylvania decision would not stand up after Moore versus Harper. This is his view. Um, and he said state courts should get the message 
that they should stay much closer to you know existing law and et cetera, et cetera. So Ned is envisioning what you're describing. He's envisioning uh, the decision actually having significant effects, but not in a way we would see. Because if he's right about this, state courts are going to pull back from some of the things they might otherwise have been doing. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends a bit on you know what you think about decisions like the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. But if, if Ned is right about that, and if this is like Shaw versus Reno, when there's a certain internalization of a new boundary and it leads legislatures to pull back, or state courts, I should say, or other state actors, um, that would mean that the proponents of the independent state legislature doctrine actually achieved a, a meaningful victory, even as they lost sort of on the, on the, on the major front uh, that they were fighting. Because if we do notice, we may not even notice it, but if we do see a reigning in uh, of actions by state election administrators and state, uh, state Supreme Courts, um, that would be a significant effect of the decision um, and, you know, I, Ned goes so far as to say that that Pennsylvania decision would not hold up under this analysis. I'm not prepared uh, to say that because I don't think we, you know, we have enough sense of what the content of the boundaries are and the standards. But that's pretty interesting. It's not just that the decision will cast uncertainty and shadows over 2024. It may have effects in 2024 that aren't quite as visible because it will be this internal self-restraint that's emerging. I'd want to read a whole lot of Pennsylvania, old Pennsylvania election cases <laughs> before I would be able to say how much it's deviating. That's a, that's a very fact-specific kind of question, I think. Um, well, I think that, Ned's position a, is like Derek's, which is if you have a date in a statute, you know, changing the date, that goes beyond what Moore versus Harper would permit. And you think that's true even if they ordinarily change, if they change dates all the time and there's a history of them doing it for 50 years? Derek? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what do you think? Oh, well, so again, I think this gets to your point too earlier, uh, Rick Pildes, on you know how you construe novelty, right? If the court has long said, well, in emergencies, we change it, we change dates and blizzards going back to 1822, and we've changed, you know, and, and they're able to sort of point to these things. Um, now, it's harder, again, I think, the level of generality matters, the free and fair elections clause. What does that mean? What does that embody? What kind of judicial commitments are there to it? Does it, even if they've never changed the date before, you're able to look back at these, you know, pronouncements of James Wilson at the ratifying convention to say, like, this is how we conceive of the role of this free and fair elections clause. Again, I think it is so context specific and going to be heavily built on precedent, even with, even with specific specific provisions. I do want to get one more issue in here with Bertrand, which is the political valence. And then I'll come back to, to everyone. Unsaid is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was dominated by Democrats and took a, uh, you know, expansive view of voting rights. It's easy to imagine running to a more conservative court. And so to give another example from 2020, during the pandemic, Harris County, Texas, decided to have drive-through voting to make it easier for people during the pandemic to be able to vote. They didn't have a lot of mail voting was not allowed uh, on an extensive basis in Texas. But so Harris County does this drive-through voting and there's a state lawsuit that says you can't do it under state law. And eventually the, the state legislature changes the laws, makes it clear you can't have drive-through voting. But there's a federal lawsuit that's filed too. And it ends up being dismissed as moot. But Judge Oldham, who's a pretty conservative judge on the Fifth Circuit, says this violates the Elections Clause. So I'm wondering, are we going to see a lot of cases involving Democratic state Supreme Courts or Democratic election administrators where they do something that Republicans or conservatives don't like and they run to conservative judges in federal courts? Yeah, I think you're going to see some of that. I think you're actually going to see it go both ways to a certain extent. Um, but I think that with the with regards to the election disputes that arose in the 2020 election in particular, where there was efforts to provide greater access to voting at a time of a pandemic, um, there were opportunities to run to the to the conservative courthouses to try to get um, favorable opinions to overturn um, the decisions of state court judges or state executive officials. And so, um, but there could be a time in which that you know turns around, in which there are efforts perhaps to restrict the vote or make it a little bit more um, challenging um, that the that the court is 
overwhelming to countenance, um, for which there's an opportunity to turn the other way and say that the court cannot do that given the provision of access that's been provided um, by the state legislature. So I don't know if it necessarily will have a partisan valence over the long term. I think in the short term, perhaps a partisan valence will be one in which there's a run to conservative courts for those favorable decisions. But I also say in terms of thinking about um, this particular um, issue is that um, when you think about sort of the state courts and their role in interpreting state constitutions, the state courts have a long history, but these clauses in state constitutions have, are very underdeveloped. There hasn't been interpretation and application of these clauses to controversies such as partisan gerrymandering. And, and returning to you know, the question of whether um, the North Carolina partisan gerrymandering violates the free election clause, there wasn't a past of jurisprudence on this question to, to help guide the court. It was a novel issue. It was, a, it was an issue that the court was trying to address for the first time. And so when you think about the anti-novelty argument or point that Justice Kavanaugh makes, um, it, well, a lot of these issues are going to be quite novel. And so is it every time the court is taking, state courts are taking on a matter of first impression or early impression um, that, and they resolve it in a particular way, does that does that um, violate the anti-novelty um, um, doctrine to the extent that it is that? Um, and if it does so, you're really depriving the courts of an important responsibility with respect to interpreting and applying their state constitutions. And then the final point that you raised earlier is goes to methodology, right? And courts have different ways in which they interpret statutes in the Constitution. And so to the extent that the methodology deviates from how the federal courts ordinarily interpret and apply the statutes in the Constitution, will that raise a question? I think that you're going to see state courts going to be feeling quite restrained and perhaps deterred um, from engaging in their constitutional responsibility under, under their state constitutions and interpreting state statutes. And, and going to your point that you made earlier, Rick, that if they are deterred, then you know, those who advocated for the ISLT um, will have achieved a major victory here. Carolyn, you wanted to say something a, a minute ago. Yeah, it actually follows well on, on, on Bertrand's comments. Um, I, I want to say something first about the novelty point. Justice Kavanaugh quotes from Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore to make this point that where, where there's some really dramatic change in the, what the state of the law is from before and after the Supreme, whatever the state court does, that that's at issue. But it, I think he's really pulling that language out of context. And I hope that this is an argument that will be pressed to the Supreme Court when, as I'm sure it will, it will be asked to, to think about this. Chief Justice Rehnquist says that only after he's made it very clear that he's imputing a very specific intent to the Florida legislature that he thinks has to be honored above, above really everything else, which is the specific intent to take advantage of the safe harbor provision in the then existing Electoral Count Act. And that if there's going to be a change in the law, or even if Congress might think that there's a change in the law that would deprive Florida of access to that safe harbor provision, he thinks that would be inconsistent with what the legislature was doing. Uh, and that's, that is just not going to be the, the particulars of many of these types of, uh, of disputes. The Electoral Count Act has been, has been amended. There is something very specifically unique about that, the context in which Chief Justice Rehnquist talks about novelty that I don't think Kavanaugh is acknowledging at all. How do these issues end up in federal court besides the Supreme Court? You know, we can see the path that goes to, you know, state Supreme Court decides extend the deadline by three days, cert petition to the U.S. Supreme Court. But election administrator does something like drive through voting. Can you file a, an original action in a district court, federal district court? Like, how are these cases getting to the lower federal courts, if at all? I assume you can't take a state Supreme Court decision and appeal it to a federal district court. No, right. So that that is barred by Rooker Feldman. So if we're we're getting deep in the federal courts world now, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in that posture where you're coming out of the state court system and the state court has this ruling, usually if we're dealing with the immediacy of an election, like you're petitioning for certiorari and that's it. 
You can try to run to a federal court if you weren't a party in that original litigation, so somebody else. But there's a lot of problems about who's as privity, who has a special relationship with those parties in the state court. I think we're going to see some interesting arguments in the near future if a political party intervenes. Will candidates or others who are represented by that political party, will they be deemed bound by that judgment? Other candidates who show up, but voters generally don't have standing to bring these challenges in federal court because they're generalized grievances. Um, so I think when it's a state court decision, I think it's going to be much tougher. Now, the one thing, and Bertrand mentioned it, and Rick Pildes mentioned it earlier about the about the scope of this decision. I'm still on the fence about what this means for election administrators changing rules or what that looks like. You're right that if an election administrator says, oh, we're going to have drive-through voting, or we're, or as happened in Minnesota and North Carolina in 2020, we're entering into a consent decree with plaintiffs who have sued us as the executive official. If somebody runs to federal court and does that, what does that look like? This is a very state court-centric decision. Part two of the opinion is like Marbury versus Madison for state courts. It's just this sort of magnum opus about what judicial review looks like. Right? And while there might be some analogies that carry over to the election official context, I I'm still not sure what that's going to look like. That's probably where we're going to see more suits arising in the federal courts. But to me, that just raises more questions than answers about what – because election officials – are not doing judicial review. They're they're executing statutes. So I, I, I am at a loss to think about what that's going to look like in 2024. I, I'm, Jarek, I'm a little puzzled about that because, you know, we know the Bush v. Gore concurrence is there and it's now been endorsed by a majority of the court. And that's in the context of interpreting statutes. And I find it hard to imagine why it would be that state courts are barred from departing too far from the state statute but state election administrators are free of this constitutional constraint. I, I'm, I feel pretty confident that, that this decision is going to impose the same constraints. Yeah, it's not that I, I'm not confident that it's that they're going to be constrained. It's I just don't know what it what it looks like when you're not talking about the context of judicial review. There, there are there there are discretionary actions expressly given in a lot of these statutes or ambiguity left to be fleshed out in the administrative context to election officials that doesn't really play in the judicial context. I mean, maybe very rarely there's sort of judicial discretion, but I think for them, I think it's going to look different in the application. So maybe it's the same thing that just looks different in application, but I just don't know how it as easily translates to a lot of election codes that often leave it to the discretion of election officials to figure out how to administer. That's all. All right, let me turn to some of the questions that the audience has put in it. All right, so the first question that someone asks is, if you don't like Robert's vague standard uh, for the, the well, I guess we're calling the weaker version of ISLT, what would you have put in place? Uh, do you think there should be any kind of meaningful review of state court decisions in election cases? Open that up to any of you. I think, yes, there should be. Uh, and I think the, the appropriate place to look is due process. There should be federal court review if a state court really goes way off the rails. Uh, and it should be the same review with respect to federal elections that it is for state elections. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that it, it, it should be meaningfully different. The big question mark in, that we've been sort of talking about is this, what does it mean to say beyond the ordinary bounds of judicial review? And that should be understood, and I hope it will be understood, to be an extremely high bar that's akin to saying this state court has gone so far off the rails, it's not acting as a court, which is very different from saying, well, we're going to, we don't like it, the, the court, the state court used its equitable powers to change a deadline, or we don't like it because we disagree with this particular statutory interpretation. Those are very different types of analysis. And so I would say, yes, there is some limit. But it's, it's a pretty broad one. So it's like an arbitrary and capricious standard. Something like that. I agree with that point very much. And I think one, important, one thing that's important to recognize is that, you know, courts, as we all probably know, are not above politics. And especially when you are in a system with elected judges who may have their loyalty to party that may exceed their loyalty to their position and um, may, you know, prevent them or act as an obstacle to exercising their role responsibly. So I do feel um, that it's important that there be some check on federal courts or state courts, you know, in a sense, 
going well beyond what they are, their role is. But I do think that the standard should be one ordinary, ordinarily of deference, because um, I just don't want to get, I don't think federal courts should be involved in the business of how state courts are checking how state courts interpret their constitutions or even statutes that are ambiguous in particular. I take it, and Carolyn or anyone can answer this, that the due process argument's not off the table. So imagine the deadline's extended by three days in Pennsylvania and it affects the outcome of a governor's race. You obviously can't make an elections clause argument there, but you could make a due process argument and say that the the state court decision was arbitrary and capricious, right? You still would have that option. It would just be harder to win. I don't know if I completely endorse arbitrary and capricious. I'd have to think about precisely what the language is. Uh, but yes, it, and it should, but it should be hard to win. I mean, that, that's that's the point. It's It should be hard to win, whether it's for the presidency or for the governorship. Uh, I I just, I agree with, Petrol agrees with me, I agree with him. Uh, this should be something that is left for state courts to do. And I don't assume I am always going to agree with what state courts do at all. Uh, but they have an area in which they operate, and it may vary from state to state, right? Some state courts are going to have different types of powers than other state courts. Some state courts are going to be Textualists, some of them aren't. And that's okay under our system. And to say, well, we, the federal courts, are going to step in and say, well, you didn't construe the statute closely enough to the text, or you've invoked these, you know, you used your equitable powers in ways that we wouldn't have, I think is just inappropriate. Well, as a practical matter, I just wonder if any of you have thoughts on what would be the delta of difference between a due process arbitrary and capricious standard and the Roberts transgressing the ordinary bounds of judicial review or whatever like how how what what difference is there in that form i understand as law professors we care about the clause and we care about the phrasing but i wonder boots on the ground what difference it might be well i mean here's one difference i carolyn actually or rick identified another one but or it's related as many of you know uh one of the famous due process cases in the election context in state elections involved the alabama supreme court and the lower federal court held after extensive fact-finding that the Alabama Supreme Court had traditionally treated absentee ballots one way, now it treated them differently. This was a state Supreme Court election, actually, as well. Um, And they held that this violated due process. And you wouldn't be able to reach uh, the actions of state courts or the actions of state election uh, administrators that depart from past practices, but are not, those practices aren't codified in statute by the independent state legislature theory and its weaker version. So in one, so due process is, would be actually more expansive. I basically agree with Carolyn that that's a better basis for getting at the risk of various state actors manipulating state election law after the fact, uh, after votes have been cast, or even maybe before votes have been cast. Unlike Carolyn, I believe there is a distinct federal interest in the integrity of federal elections that the Constitution, you know, properly kind of recognizes. I'm not sure that would change exactly the contours of this due process doctrine, but maybe you apply it with a little more teeth in the context of federal elections, because I I do think there is a distinct federal interest the Constitution should be understood to recognize in the integrity of of the federal election process. Yeah, as Carolyn wrote in uh, her article, I I can't remember, was that in the Supreme Court Review? I can't remember where it was. Uh, University of Chicago. We could end up with, uh, say, a situation where those 10,000 ballots at issue are counted in a state election but not counted in a federal election. So they do raise all kinds of questions of election administration that are going to crop up if we have a separate rule in federal elections. I want to get to two more questions. Uh, They're both great questions. I think I'm going to throw them both on the table and give you each a chance to respond to either or both of them before we conclude. The first one is about strategy. And the question is, given Kavanaugh's concurrence in, say, Wisconsin, where the state Supreme Court has flipped to majority liberal, do you challenge a state legislative gerrymander first before you try and challenge to establish a principle that partisan gerrymandering violates the state constitution and then challenge the congressional districts uh, in order to show it's not novel? And then the other question is, uh, Kavanaugh says in his concurrence, this is a rule that applies to state statutes and to state constitutions. What does it mean to respect the legislature when it comes to state constitutions? That's kind of a non sequitur. Two really great questions. So I'm going to just go around and ask each of you to respond to either or both of these things. Let me start with uh, Rick Pildes. Well, on that first question, that's, that's a very clever question. Uh, I, I enjoy that too. 
you know, I don't know how to think about these tactical issues now. We just have the decision. I haven't begun to think in, in that way. Um, you know, it's very difficult because, of course, we don't know what what kind of teeth this doctrine actually is going to have or not have. Um, we don't know whether there's another justice in the majority of the court that's drawn to Justice Kavanaugh's approach, which does seem to be something about uh, avulsive changes in state law or state interpretation. So uh, I have to think about what you know how I would think about this as a as a uh, litigator or somebody um, advising litigation. That's a, a very very interesting question. I, I should say this is easier in states that have express provisions on various issues, including state courts that ban expressly ban partisan gerrymandering, which you know a handful of state constitutions now do. I don't think there's any issue about those provisions and those provisions applying to federal elections and being enforced by state courts in federal elections. So that's a different situation in those states. What was the second question? Remind me. Constitutional versus statutory interpretation and respect for the legislature. How do you know when there's too much deviation when it comes to state constitutions? Well, I think this is a huge open question. I mean, I, I wrote about this a fair amount at the, at the time of the argument. Um, I saw the temptation within the court to extend the Bush v. Gore concurrence, to use that as a template for the constitutional domain. Uh, and I thought, as Justice Thomas said, actually, in picking up on a, a number of these issues in his dissent, state constitutional interpretation is very different than state statutory interpretation. With statutes, they're typically much more elaborate, much more detailed. You have a much firmer anchor in deciding what goes too far from the text. But many of these state constitutional provisions are drafted in as broad terms as the federal constitution. We know that almost all of the major Supreme Court decisions under the federal constitution in the law of democracy were these dramatic changes from past practice, you know, whether it's the reapportionment revolution, one vote, one person, recognizing the right to vote as a fundamental right, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we have all these puzzles that are raised about uh, how you would apply this doctrine in the constitutional domain. Does there have to be state precedent that provides a toehold for the new decisions? Uh, does the it matter, you know, some states have these precedents, some states don't, but it's the same right to vote provision. It is a lot more difficult. I, I, I agree with Justice Thomas's dissent on this point. It is more difficult to anchor a judgment about how far is too far in the area of constitutional interpretation rather than statutory interpretation. I jump in on, on the end of that point with Thomas's view, but specifically, it is analytically two different things we're dealing with the statutes versus the constitution. When you're looking at the statute, you're trying to effectuate the will of the legislature, and then there's going to be fights about whether or not that's what the legislature really wanted, which in some ways is pretty messy. I mean, we saw that in Bush versus Gore play out about May and Shell and trying to discern what the legislature wants. These constitutional cases, though, it really does pit the legislature against the court because the Constitution is being used to check a legislative enactment. And so it plays out a little bit differently as we're asking if the state court has strayed too much from the state Constitution. But it pits the legislature's will very directly <laughs> against what the court is doing, unlike the sort of ordinary statutory interpretation case. Bertrand? Importantly, many of these state constitutional provisions are limitations on legislative power. And so to make the question about what the legislature wants with respect to the constitutional provision seems to be besides the point, because the focus of these provisions is to check legislative power. Um, I, I guess I would just kind of raise, you know, in terms of the first question, um, with respect to how do you sort of, um, which way do you proceed? You know, I, I also haven't thought that deeply about the strategy. It's a great question. It seems with the anti-novelty point, you would probably want to proceed with challenging the state partisan gerrymander before the federal partisan gerrymander um, to you know, eliminate the novelty point or at least reduce it. But there's still a question, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about in terms of the, the phrase beyond the bounds of ordinary judicial review, is whether the court is getting at something, um, getting at the remedy question. And is there a concern about courts diving in, hiring special masters and whatnot to draw maps in the partisan gerrymandering or gerrymandering districting context. And one of the reasons why I think that the court decided this case, despite 
probably being moot was that they didn't have to delve into the remedial question in this case because that question was off the table. But that remedial question could come back, will likely come back on the table in future cases. And will the court be willing to countenance state courts being involved in the redrawing of district maps? Or will they consider that to be beyond the bounds of judicial review? And if it is beyond the bounds of judicial review, and the legislature says, we're not going to abide by drawing, we're not going to draw new maps, um, even though you've declared these old maps unconstitutional, we are in a pretty deep conundrum for which there's no clear resolution. So I think that that's an important point to also reflect on in terms of where this might all be heading, at least in the districting context. All right, Carolyn, you get the last word. We've got two minutes left. Well, I also don't really think I'm in a position at this moment to give anybody strategy advice, but I, I think the question points to the real muddle of mixing up federal court review of state courts and state courts' interpretation of their own constitutions. I mean, somebody earlier noted that most state Supreme Courts are elected. So presumably when the people of the state of North Carolina or the people of the state of Wisconsin in a very hard-fought election choose justices who have indicated that they are going to interpret the state constitution a particular way, is that an evulsive change if then the, that justice then goes ahead and votes that way? Or is that the way the state is supposed to operate? Uh, and I think the Supreme Court, at least the, the, the what we've been sort of alluding to, is the possibility that the, the U.S. Supreme Court won't give state constitutional law that sort of allow for that kind of small d democratic input that is, in fact, inherent in what a lot of state courts do. Well, I'm glad we answered all of the difficult questions related to Moore versus Harvard. <laughs> Sounds like uh, there are a lot of law review articles to be written over the summer. Derek Muller, Carolyn Shapiro, Bertrand Ross, Rick Pildes, thanks for a great conversation, and uh, I'm sure it won't be the last word on this case. Well, that's a wrap for season four of the ALB podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back again in the fall. In the meantime, Please send me your thoughts about what you'd like to hear on the ELB podcast for season five. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band BFN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.